Before we begin, this show is being released in the last week of 2016. We hope as you prepare for celebrating the end of this year and the promise of a new year, you'll reflect on the idea that you, me, us, them, and especially all of us listening now, love Texas. So, hug a Texan and share your love of Texas and its rich history, and remember the things we are thankful for this year and in the next. I myself am thankful for my friends, Sean and Scott, who week in and out over the last three years have worked on this project with me. And I'm especially thankful for you, the listener. So, that said, Happy New Year, and God bless Texas. I'd say, alternatively to loving Texas, you could all be enemies of Texas trying to learn our secrets (laughs) so that you can defeat us. You don't have to put that in there. Just something that occurred to me. God bless Texas! And right there I learned that a good cow horse knew more than a green Dutchman. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. Today we bring you a second edition of Texas Trail Drivers, a two-volume book compiling first-hand stories from experienced trail drivers and their life on the plains. So in a different kind of episode, we're presenting three tales of Texas trail drivers in their own words. But first, what's your favorite German dish? Was ist dein Lieblings Texas Deutsche Essen? Well, I'm rather boring, but uh, I always, when we go to the Bavarian Grill, I almost always look carefully at the entire menu, consider carefully, and then just order the Jaeger schnitzel, which is a uh, breaded and uh, fried schnitzel with a savory mushroom sauce and it it's supposed to come with uh, the little uh, potato um, noodle things and spetzel. Spetzel. salad yeah spetzel and salad but uh, I usually just double up on the potatoes and get the mashed potatoes and the warm potato salad mm-hmm. um, it's a very satisfying meal yeah uh, the true fact the true fact schnitzel is an antecedent to chicken fried steak well yeah obviously yeah well my, well, my favorite is uh, my favorite is a dish called Rinderlod, and it is a uh, Angus beef roll, generally roast beef, that's been rolled up and stuffed with onions, bacon, and a very interestingly enough, a German pickle, and then it's it's roasted and then it's covered in uh, uh, some gravy, and I, I like it served with the with the red cabbage uh, and or the red sauerkraut. I'm not a big fan of plain sauerkraut but the red sauerkraut i really like and i like the spetzel and then of course uh you got to have your uh, pretzel bread with that too mm, good stuff ich liebe bratwurst oder blutwurst oder knockwurst wurstwurst <laughs> any kind of sausage you just take an animal grind it up put a little seasoning in there stuff it in a casing and uh, i'll probably eat it so if you're if you're in the dallas area go to Bavarian Grill in Plano. Uh, and then if you are in the Austin area, take a road trip out to Wahlberg, which is north of Austin, uh, between on the way to Temple. Go to Wahlberg and go to the Wahlberg German Restaurant. Uh, and uh, it's a real beer, beer garden, a Texas German heritage. Check it out. It's very good. As usual, with uh, any time we're presenting a historical text as is, there is direct language from real people born two centuries ago. 
and sometimes they can use terms and references to uh, people, uh, especially Native Americans and Tejanos, that uh, we would consider coarse and uh, uncouth today. Just be aware that we're presenting these stories in their own words. Our first story is called Why I Am a Prohibitionist, from George F. Hines of Pearsall and Hines, Texas. I was born in Alabama, September 1844, and graduated in a little homemade schoolhouse in the piney woods of Lauderdale County, Mississippi, near where the city of Meridian now stands. I graduated at the age of 11 years and moved with my parents and wagons from there to Caldwell County, near Lockhart, Texas, that fall. I visited Lockhart on Christmas Day for the first time, and in those days Lockhart was wild and woolly, a wide-open town where whiskey and every other kind of blue ruin flowed freely. That day I saw a Mr. Perry kill a Mr. Cabanus with a knife. To me it was a frightful experience. My curiosity caused me to ask what caused the trouble, and I was told it was whiskey. Then I went strong for prohibition and was never intoxicated in my life. We lived in Caldwell County until the fall of 1856 when my father sold a likely Negro woman to major fields for stock cattle, and we started west with the cattle, grown up with the country as poor Horace Greeley's advice. I was herd boss on the trip. We drove our herd through San Antonio from Alamo Plaza to Commerce Street and down Commerce Street to South Flora Street and on to Atascosa County. This was before the county was organized and my father first served on the jury and paneled in the county. We settled on the San Miguel Creek where the town of Hines is now located and where we had a world of free range with great abundance of wild game of every kind, even wild Mustang cattle and Mustang horses. I soon got to be an expert shot with rifle and pistol, a good roper and a fast and fearless rider, and soon made friends with all the mustangers and hunters. We killed the native wild cattle for their hides and tallow, and the meat we could save. I caught and tamed lots of mustang horses, mostly young stock. In the pioneer days of danger and adventure and with no other or better job, I learned to be so fond of hunting and the chase that I have never gotten over it and can still ride a horse and shoot a rifle as good as anyone. On two occasions, the Indians rounded me up, once with the Mr. Seals on the San Miguel when we stood them off half of one night, and another time with the Mr. Atkins when they kept us surrounded half of one afternoon at Charco Lago. A good run always suited me better than a doubtful stand, but either one is lonesome and frightful. In 1865, 28 Redskins gave me a hard race, but I beat them to the river bottom and got away. Another time, 15 of them gave me a close chase and would have caught me but in their trying to cut me off from the river, they ran onto a steep bluff bank and could not get down. On one occasion, three friends and myself went on a hunting trip south of the Nueces River for a week's hunt. Had a good time, but in a short time thereafter, all of the three were killed and all dying with their boots on. Another time, my father, a Mr. Wheat, and myself had a good and successful hunt on the San Miguel, and in a short time the Indians killed Mr. Wheat in Medina County, and my father was killed by the Indians at his home in McMullen County. The pioneers that were on the frontier before and during Reconstruction days suffered many privations and hardships, and half of them did not live to tell the story. But during these times, as dreary and dull as they were, there was a man whose life was as brilliant as a ray of sunshine following the dark and temptuous clouds. That man was Jim Lowe, who was one of the first settlers in McMullen County, and who was the best fixed man in that section. He was truly one of God's noblemen, a philanthropist of the First Order. He made it possible for many poor families to have bread in their homes who otherwise would have had to live on meat alone. I was truly benefited by his wise counsel and good backing. 
In March 1865, about the close of the Civil War, I married the best little girl in the world, and she lived to bless my life for 56 years to a day, and passed on to her reward in March 1921. Quote, When musing on companions gone, we doubly feel ourselves alone. The year 1865 was an eventful one in my life. Married in March, I was promptly notified that I must, quote, quit my meanness. The war closed in May, and the Indians killed my father in August. However, with all the energy and determination I possessed, I went to work on the wreck, for we lost practically everything we possessed during the war. I proceeded under difficulties too numerous to mention, but by the spring of 1872 had gotten together a pretty good little herd of mixed cattle and drove them to Kansas that spring. I had about the usual amount of trouble that a man has on his first drive over the trail. I was compelled to swim swollen streams, had storms at night, and several stampedes. Finally, I bumped into the Osage tribe of Indians, and they gave us an exhibition of what they could do to a Texas herd, shooting and yelling the regular Indian war whoop. They killed about 100 beeves right there on the prairie in sight, and scattered the others to the four wrens, causing Mr. Reedus great loss and trouble. I drove my herd to Wichita, Kansas, and held them there on fine grass until fall, and sold out at good prices. When I got home that fall, I had more than $15,000 in cash, in gold, $10,000 in life insurance policy, a remnant of cattle, and a good bunch of horses that I had left in Texas. I did not owe a dollar, and felt chesty as Croesus in his palmiest days ever dared to feel. I handled several herds after that in Kansas and Wyoming, and always made a little money. I never bossed another herd all the way from start to finish, but I knew the game, and if a man made good, it was indeed a hard trip. At another time, I delivered 2,500 head of cattle in Wyoming on the 10th day of September in an all-day snowstorm. And while it was indeed something different to what I had been accustomed to, I could not enjoy it at all. I kept buying, selling, and trading cattle until 1882 when I made the best money in my life by buying about 40,000 acres of San Miguel land where the town of Hines is located in San Antonio, Uvalde, and Gulf Railroad at a very low price. I have watched it go up in value these 40 years while I was using it for pasture until I have sold some of it for $100 an acre, some at 75 an acre, and have never sold any for less than $20 an acre. I allotted my children sufficient land that if used and managed with prudence and care will provide them liberally with life's needs, still have a good block of it left, and expect to develop an oil field in the near future. In the fall of 1903, I helped organize the Pearsall National Bank at Pearsall, Texas, and have served continuously on its board of directors. For the past 10 years, I have been its president, resigning just recently in order to enable me to give my personal business the attention it deserves. In 1909, I also helped organize the Atascosa County State Bank at Jordanton, Texas, and served as its president for six years, relinquishing my post of duty only after the bank was thoroughly established and doing a nice business. However, I am still one of the largest stockholders in the Atascosa County Bank and a large stockholder and director in the Pearsall National Bank. Looking back now, it seems that providential guidance has been instrumental in my living through the many harrowing experiences of the early days when Indians roamed the country and later, especially after the war, when outlaws gave so much trouble to the pioneers of the Southwest. It gives me much pleasure and consolation in having been spared to see the great Southwest transformed from pioneer to the modern stage, where folks mingle with one another in security and all friendliness, and where now exists a spirit of democracy and helpfulness that makes the country a desirable place to live, grow, and prosper. I do not say boastingly, but there is a great deal of personal satisfaction in knowing that I was permitted to have a part in the upbuilding of this section of our wonderful state. I picked this one. Um, 
I lived for two years in Pearsall. And uh, it's a Frio County. It's the seat of Frio County. And I've actually been in that bank numerous times because it was small enough that was pretty much the only bank in town. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable that he went his, he, he, from, from running away from Indians to being a banker. <laughs> Yeah, well. You know, in the course of a life of multiple banks, two different banks. And, uh, you know, that's it's again, it's it's like Goodnight and the other people that we talked about. He, he built himself from from modest means. And and it's like he said himself, he saw his the country that he lived in, the area that he lived in, go from frontier chaos to uh, civilization. Yeah. I mean, what a remarkable time to exist and live your life to to span that transition at the you know the the end of one era and the beginning of another and you were fortunate if you survived that first part yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you lived if you managed to live it was well, a remarkable pl- life to live well i find it interesting the title of it is why i am a prohibitionist and it was just basically this book was written in uh i think around 24 and so in 1924, you know, this was on the forefront. And he was like, look, I was a kid. We moved to Texas. I went to town. I saw one man stab another to death right there in front of me on the street. And uh, why? Because they were drunk. And he saw a bunch of disorderly drunks. And he said, I don't uh, don't want any part of that. And he seemed like not a... Not for me. <laughs> not for me. It's not for me. You know, not for me. But he seemed a man of, uh, you know, very determined individual. Uh, very much a man of the time of Texas. So... A man of action. A man of action who very nearly got himself killed on numerous occasions. <laughs> so if you survived, you usually end up doing pretty good. Yeah. Nope. Well, well, so speaking of surviving, uh, my story is from John B. Connor of Yoakum, Texas, which is down in the uh, uh, Gonzales area, uh, south of southeast of San Antonio. Near and Quero. his story is called, yeah, near Cuero. Uh, and his story is called, Was in a Railroad Wreck. <laughs> when I was three years old, my parents came from Mississippi to Texas in an ox-drawn schooner, arriving on Five Mile Creek in Gonzales County in 1869. In Five Mile vicinity, the settlers were Carson, Sedbury, Atkinson, Killow, Gil Womack, O'Neill, Gibson, both Price, Floyd, Ward, Jeffries, Casey, and others. Some of those pioneers built their houses out of oak logs, while others hauled pine lumber from Indianola and Port Lavaca with ox teams. My father, Jim Connor, built a pine lumber house in 1872, and it's still standing in good shape. Father died in 1873, and we lost the place, later moving into a log house over on the west prong of Five Mile Creek to the old Gibson place, near which was a cattle trail. We lived on this place several years and saw thousands of cattle and horses pass up the trail. There was another trail which ran from Victoria to Quero by concrete onto Town Prairie, two miles above Gonzales, where the two trails came together. I remember the summer of 1877 was so dry the creeks dried up and hundreds of cattle perished for water, and that winter hundreds of others died in piles, many of them being skinned for their hides. The first pasture fence in that section was built by John Jeffries on the head of East Five Mile Creek in 1878. It was constructed of two elm planks at the top and black wire at the bottom. In 1878 or 1879, Bob Floyd built a large pasture south of the West Five Mile Creek and made it of large split rails and finished it with two strings of elm plank and one strand of black wire. 
rail and brush fences around fields were the rule in those days. When I was 18 years old in 1885, I had my first chance to go up the trail. On 18th of April of that year, we left Gonzales, seven outfits going out at the same time. We went to Kyle with 160 wild Spanish ponies, and there another bunch of 400 was thrown in with ours and shipped for Wichita Falls, both horses and men. At Fort Worth, we laid overnight in the day and then took the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad, struck a washed-out bridge between Bellevue and Bowie, and had to take a freight train for Henrietta, leaving there at sundown and backing up for Wichita Falls. We were all in and all over those boxcars. I was outside on top when the engine turned over, killed the engineer and two Negro trail hands, and I was thrown into a slough of water several feet deep. About three o'clock that night, we reached Wichita Falls and slept in the depot. Next day, we got our chuck wagon fixed up and went to housekeeping. For two or three days, we made preparations to take the trail, picking up our horses. Each man was allowed one night horse and five day horses, changing three times a day. We went to Doan's store on Rev River and crossed and went up the Salt Fork to the Goodnight Ranch, where we received 3,000 head of two and three-year-old heifers, steers, and bulls of the Dash X brand. The horses on this ranch were branded Diamond F on the left hip. My boss was J.G. Jones. The cattle were brought by Lyle and Stevens and were bound for Colorado. As I was a young chap, I was made horse wrangler, but I had to do everything from punching drags to night herding on the bed ground. We had some terrible storms and stampedes, and several head of cattle were killed by lightning while we were on the west side of Red River in Greer County, Texas. We went from there to Wheeler County and crossed the north fork of Red River, then crossed Sweetwater Creek east of Mobti, and then went on to Hempville and crossed the Wichita east of Catiline, then into Roberts County, crossed the Canadian and on to Stack Plains, struck near the head of Wolf Creek and on to Paladura Canyon. There we saw hundreds of buffalo had died on the plains, many of which were killed by hunters just for their hides. In Tree County, we saw three buffalo and some of the boys killed one, but the outfit with the next herd got the meat. At Paladura, we struck the old trail and the stage line from Dodge City to Tecosa, Texas. The cattle quarantine turned us from going to Colorado and went into Kansas, where as soon as we struck the railroad, I decided to pull for home as I was not well. I went to Dodge City, the honky-tonk town, cleaned up, bought a suit of clothes, and then left for San Antonio, reaching home July 1st, 1885. So the story ends. Hmm. You know, the funny thing of this is, is that, and we see this in so many of these classic stories, I got on a train, the train turned over and exploded, and I was thrown from the train into a ditch of shallow water. The next day, I got <laughs> yeah, exactly. up, got on my horse, and went on my way. Yeah, we went, and then we, we had to finish our work, so... <laughs> Uh, it's, I mean, not, not these guys just like talk non-plus. about like nonplus. Yep. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Nonplus. Well, I mean, I I go back to these stories of tragedy in Texas and all these horrible things that happen, and people are like, "Well, you know, yeah, things, things bad happen. Tragedies happen." Uh, I. It is very detailed description yeah. of of the the cattle drive and of where they went. So the interesting thing about Greer County, Texas, is Greer County is actually not in Texas. Greer County is in Oklahoma. Uh, there was a boundary dispute over the Red River, and at the time, up until the like the night, you know, the turn of the century, Greer County was, in a lot of cases, considered part of Texas, not of Oklahoma. But today, if you go to Greer County, there is no Greer County, Texas. So I, th- I thought that was a real interesting point to make. Uh, uh, if you don't really know the history of it, it's very interesting. Like if you know the Red River, it flows from east to west. So the west bank of the Red River in Texas 
doesn't really exist uh, <laughs> in that part of the state. Well, what I love is if you go to Wikipedia, there's actually a li- wiki, wiki slash list yeah. <laughs> of former United States counties. And like under Texas, there's a whole bunch of them. And Greer's there. 1895, transferred to the yeah. Oklahoma Territory under a Supreme Court decision. Yeah. But um, there's also interesting thing t- touches on some of our previous episodes. It talks about Cuero and Gonzalez, and and uh, I'm sure that the people that he knew growing up as a kid were those same people that we've talked about. That uh, I mean, I, I don't see Creed Taylor in here, but I wouldn't doubt that he knew Creed Taylor. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then to the Good Night, you no, know, he picked that they picked up cattle from the Good Night Ranch uh, to take up to uh, up to Colorado. And uh, and then the, the 1877 die off of the of the uh, cattle that was another thing that was talked about. So yeah, yeah. Well, and I think about that when he's like, we came over and saw just yeah all the dead buffalo that had been skinned and left. Yeah, the adobe walls. That, uh, yeah, that, that you know. I was maybe thinking of those scenes from Dances with Wolves to see like the prairie with the dead buffalo everywhere. He's yeah. like, yikes. But yeah, and then then he decided I'm going to go home because I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's where my story ends. So, uh, the story that I've chosen to read is entitled The Pluck of a Poor German Boy. Uh, this was written by B. Vesper of Big Wells, Texas. I was born in Germany in 1845 on a farm. My father died when I was seven years old, and I was reared by a good mother. I served as an apprentice in the blacksmith trade for three years, working for my board, and would walk home a distance of six miles every Sunday. In 1868, when I was 23 years old, I left Germany and came to America, landing in New York, where I took an immigrant train for Leavenworth, Kansas. There I found some former friends, and I secured a job hauling brick in a wheelbarrow at one dollar per day. I soon gave that up and went to work in a sawmill, but that didn't suit me either, so I accepted a position in a livery stable, washing buggies and caring for 14 horses and 14 cents of harness. During this time, I made the acquaintance of Herbert Peck, a coachman for H.L. Newman of Leavenworth, and he secured me a position with Mr. Newman's brother-in-law, a Mr. Moorhead. I served Mr. Moorhead from 1868 until 1870, receiving $30 per month and board, and was treated well by the family. While working there, I met George Lang, who had a butcher shop in Leavenworth, and he invited me to go with him to Texas after a bunch of cattle. So on March 1st, 1870, we left Kansas for Texas, when the ground was covered with snow and the weather was as cold as blue blazes. We were on the road one week when we reached Red River in a storm. Next morning, we crossed the river into Texas and went to a ranch on Beaver Creek, owned by a man named Terrell of Fort Worth. Mr. Lang and I left the outfit at the ranch and rode over to Fort Worth, which was then only a very small town with one bank, a blacksmith shop, and a store. We made a trade with Mr. Terrell for 700 beeves to be gathered as soon as possible, and by the 15th of April, we were ready to start back to Kansas with them. That was the largest herd of cattle I had ever seen, and it was all new to me. I shall never forget our first night out, when we had a stampede. I flew right in and tried to keep up with the herd, but my horse fell with me, and when we got up and together again, the cattle were out of sight. I could hear a big bell on something that was running, so I decided to follow it, but soon lost the direction of the bell and concluded to go back to camp. The old horse I was riding kept trying to go in the opposite direction from the way I thought the camp was. 
I rode and rode and got so tired I climbed up in a tree to take a nap out of reach of the coyotes that were howling all around. And when I dozed off to sleep, I tumbled out of the tree, waking up in time to catch on to a lower limb. Then I again decided to try and go to camp and told the old horse if he knew more about its location than I did to go ahead. And right there I learned that a good cow horse knew more than a green Dutchman, for in just a little while he took me right into camp. I told the boys if they had stayed with me, he would have held the herd. We had no other trouble for several days, but just after crossing Red River, we caught up with two herds, one of them belonging to a man named Hunter and the other to a man named Eichel of Fort Worth. Hunter had an escort of soldiers with his herd. In passing through Fort Sill on this trip, we saw the Navajo tribe of Indians, consisting of 700, which the government was feeding at that time. There was a motherless calf which followed our herd out of Texas, and after we had been on the trail a short time, four Indians overtook us and made signs that they wanted the calf. Mr. Lane gave it to them. They roped and killed and had all the meat packed to take back with them in less than ten minutes. This just gave them a good appetite, for in a short while, sixteen young warriors overtook us, caught Mr. Lang's horse, and, yelling like the devil, demanded more beef. They stampeded our herd, but we managed to keep the cattle in line and let them run. They soon rode up with Mr. Lang, and he cut out four big steers for them, and they let us go. That night, we were only seven miles from their camp and deemed it expedient to stand guard. We got through without mishap except being in a storm or two, and reached Wichita, which was then a very small place, where Mr. Lang located a place for us to herd while he went to Leavenworth to find a buyer for the cattle. He returned in about a month, and we moved on to Abilene, where Mr. Lang had sold the cattle, and we shipped out from there, and then we all went to Leavenworth, where Mr. Lang settled with us and told us he was going back to Texas in the fall with another herd. All of the hands quit the outfit except myself and Jim White. We got the outfit ready and shipped everything to Baxter Springs, and from there we went down by Sherman, Whitesboro, and Gainesville, where we struck camp and stayed several months to let our horses fatten, while Mr. Lang made a trip to Kansas. When he returned in March, he contracted a bunch of cattle from Yarborough and Bob's Barks, and we received them at Old Fort Jackson on the range. Mr. Lang went out with them to help them round up, leaving me in charge of the camp with instructions to make each of our men take so many horses a mile or so from camp before nightfall, hobble them, and sleep there, but for one of us to keep watch each night, as the Indians were stealing everything in that country. They made a raid on the Yarborough and Sparks outfit, getting about 30 horses, including one of mine that had strayed off. We took their trail, but soon turned back and went to Fort Jackson and reported the raid to the scouts there and joined in the pursuit again. We had quite a little excitement when we overtook the Redskins. One Indian was killed and a Mexican scalped him. There were so many Indians that we decided to give up the chase and let them keep the horses. This Indian raid put Yarbrough and Sparks out of business for a while, and they gave up the contract. So we went from there to the ranches of Colonel Pickett, Dan Wagoner, and Bill Chisholm, but made no trades and were directed to Fort Griffin. <clears throat> directed to Fort Griffin. Here we bought 800 cows and beeves. Bob Sparks went on to Kansas with us and had pretty good luck. Jim White and I got an outfit together in 1871 and started on a buffalo hunt, locating our camp on the Saline River, about 20 miles from Ellsworth, Kansas, and went to killing buffalo for their hides, remaining there all winter and until the spring of 1872. Buffalo were on the range like herds of cattle, and when the north winds began to blow, they would drift south in great droves. 
In March, we left the Saline and went over on a creek called Saw Log, making our camp near the creek, never thinking of high water. About three o'clock one morning, while I was asleep in the wagon, I felt something cold and awoke just as the wagon was about to float off. I yelled to Jim to get busy, and we managed to get all of our provisions out. But before we could get everything, the old wagon went down the creek and lodged in a tree. Two of our horses were drowned in the flood, which was caused by heavy rains above us. On this trip, we killed hundreds of buffalo and made good money. From there, we went to Fort Dodge, then a very gay western town. But soon the railroad was built up to the Arkansas River, and a small town sprung up there, Dodge City. The first building to go up in the new town was a saloon and dance hall, then a blacksmith shop and store, then another saloon, and of all tough places, this was the limit. All kinds of characters gathered there. Railroaders, buffalo hunters, cowboys and gamblers, a mean mixture. One night, as I walked up to the front door of the dance hall, I saw a man standing with a gun in hand. Inside, two men had just stepped up to the bar to take a drink, but he shot one of them through the head, got on his horse, and rode off. The music stopped until the floor could be scrubbed and everything was going again as if nothing had happened. I came to Texas in 1874 and stopped in San Antonio. Here I got acquainted with some of the leading trail men of those days and began to drive butcher cattle into San Antonio from the ranches, getting several bunches from the old Cortina ranch. Here I met Simps McCoy, Duncan Lemons, John Despain, Jesse Laxon, and among others I had dealings with were Spicer, Ludwig, William Herpel, Mont and Cal Woolward, Billy Votal, Lee Harris, Ogue, Captain Crouch, Steve Speed, Billy Slaughter, and others. My business made me good money until the railroads came through. Then the stockyards were put in and the slaughter pens were built. This made the butchers more independent. Tom Doherty was the first commission man in San Antonio to handle butcher cattle, and the next one was George W. Saunders, who was still in business there. In 1881, I married Miss Lucy Hall, but she passed away within a year and a half, leaving me with a day-old baby boy, Charles B. Vesper. I had no relatives in the United States, and I had a difficult time trying to raise him, but he grew to be a big, strong man, and when he reached manhood's estate, he wanted to try his luck in some other part of the country. I attended the Cattlemen's Convention in El Paso in 1903, where I met my old friends, Mr. Moorhead and Mr. Newman, who I had worked for in 1868 in Kansas. Mr. Newman had a son who owned a ranch in New Mexico, and he said if Charles cared to try it there, he would give him a chance. He took the place and was manager for 14 years. He still resides in New Mexico, having married and settled down, and is the father of two fine boys. In 1884, I was married the second time, my bride being the stepdaughter of Chris Spicer, Miss Frances Bitter. We moved out to the ranch, which I now own, 5,000 acres, and lived there 32 years, then moved to Big Wells, turning over the ranch to my sons, J.H. and C.F. Vesper. have four children in my family, the three boys above mentioned and one girl, Marie, now Mrs. Y.C. Strait. On Christmas Day, 1919, my wife passed away, and since that time I have made my home with my daughter and on the Strait Brothers Ranch, nine miles west of Big Wells. I am now 75 years old, enjoy the best of health, and can honestly say that I was never arrested or had a case in court. Instead of driving cattle now, I drive my old Ford car with my little granddaughter, Maddie Louise Strait, as my companion, whose picture accompanies this sketch, and we don't allow any of the young cowboys to pass us either interesting story he was there for the birth wow. of dodge city apparently yeah he was got, got out of dodge. <laughs> and then he got out of town pretty fast 
Now, an interesting twist, you can go to straightranches.com. That's spelled like George Strait, S-T-R-A-I-T, ranches.com, and is actually still a working ranch that attributed to being founded by uh, Y.C. Strait in Big Wells, Texas. And then they um, they have a, uh, a Santa Gertrudis herd is what they run there yep. now. And they started doing that yep. in the 50s. So kind of neat. Kind of neat, these, these history of these uh, ranches and trail drivers. I just love the fact that this guy, like, he was, he was a 23-year-old guy and just got on a yep. boat and came to America. Uh, you know, at that time, one of the biggest business in the country, growing businesses, was the cattle business. You know, driving the cattle up from Texas. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting that he, uh, his path crossed into the buffalo hunters and uh, was a part of that whole thing, too. Oh, I know. Well, I just like this, his part of uh, a good cow horse is worth yeah. more than a, than a green Dutchman. <laughs> I, I tried to tell the horse what to do, but it kept trying to go this way. Oh. I fell out of a tree when I fell asleep. These stories paint such a, a I mean, it's interesting to hear these guys tell all the... Yeah the little details of their lives, you know, I don't know that in our lives or careers that we'll be able to tell these sort of interesting, uh, details. Like, I'm not sure that I can recall these as many details from all of the adventures we had, say in college or something like that, you know, certainly never, never lost, you know, never was uh, chased into a ravine and, and lost a herd of 700 cattle. These are fascinating stories. And the thing about it is, is that I don't think these stories can happen anymore i mean these are these are such these people are such products of their time and it's so amazing that the things that they experienced and went through and uh, and now granted they would be their minds would be blown away by the magic that is in our pockets of being able to talk to people around the world um but they're so industrious these people and 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 to be fair that the people that they talked to in this book were going to be industrious i'm sure there was some some guy that was sitting and drinking a jug in his in in the 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 porch of his shack that he lived in his entire life and did nothing, in you know somewhere in Texas that that could they could have talked to and his story would have been boring. So these these people did live interesting lives and that's why their their stories are being told. But still, yeah, it's amazing stories. The end of this story is great to me because it's like it's 1919. My wife passed away, and now mm-hmm. I drive an old Ford car with my granddaughter. And I can't help but jump back a few episodes to we we did a, yeah. an in-depth talk Red-headed about Stranger. Willie Nelson uh, with his Redhead Stranger album. And one of the very last songs in the album is uh, Hands on the Wheel. And it's about this old outlaw who's driving down the road in a car with his grandson yep. well after his time and recounting sort of this ta- these crazy tales of his youth and life. So I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're a... Texas musician and you're looking for some inspiration, yep. maybe you look to these stories. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's interesting that this is an example of a German in Texas that did not come by way of Galveston or Indianola. Whereas mostly that's what we've talked about previously. We found it found a different way into the, the state. Very true. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? 
I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sharma, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love Texas. And you love telling your friends about things you love because you're all about you. So go out there, tell your friends, and get on iTunes and leave a review because that helps us to find new listeners just like you. If you want to be a true fan, why not visit our Patreon page and support the show financially? Go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.